Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Empire Hello and welcome to my podcast. Today, I'm joined by Michael McCann, an attorney who specializes in sports law, writes about sports law topics for Politico, and is a frequent interview guest for reporters on these topics. I wanted to get some legal insight into the Washington situation and owner Dan Snyder, and Michael provided some. His thoughts on the situation from a legal perspective and what he thinks might happen. You can follow Michael on Twitter at McCann Sports Law. That's M-C-C-A-N-N Sports Law. You can read my work on ESPN.com. And you can follow the Empire Media Network on YouTube, where you can see this and other interviews. Leave a comment on those videos, and I'll respond to as many as I can. Before I play my conversation, a couple things. And I'm going to start with the obligatory, how the Super Bowl pertains to Washington. Listen, these are better teams, and we know Washington isn't close to this level, not unless it improves the quarterback play, has a D-line that works more in unison all season to realize its top-level talent. Aaron Donald is a special talent. He closed out the game. That's what those guys do. Matthew Stafford is an excellent quarterback, and Cooper Cup is an elite receiver. They came through on that final drive when the Rams had little else around Cup because of injuries. Special talents won that game. It's too bad Washington did not offer more for Stafford, but I'm also quite sure the only way they could have gotten him is to make it a no-brainer above what the Rams paid or to not have L.A. involved. Detroit was going to do him a solid. Sending him to the Rams at that point, excuse me, sending him here at that point would not have qualified unless it was a no-brainer offer. The Rams sent two firsts and a third and Jared Goff. Washington would have had to have topped that. Again, it's too bad that they couldn't get him. But I'm not saying they'd have been in the Super Bowl, but they certainly would have had a uh, different sort of um, checklist to to check off or boxes to check off this offseason rather than get a quarterback. One trouble Washington has with trading for a veteran quarterback is it lacks a quarterback that teams will want in return as to serve as a bridge starter or in Seattle's case to be able to sell to their fans that they're trying to remain competitive while moving in a different direction. Taylor Heineke is a terrific story. We all know that. But is, and this, like I said, that stuff is what I hear from other teams too. So whatever you think or anybody else thinks, it's what other teams think. And that's the key. Not what I think, not what, you, what we all think, what they think. Heineke is a terrific story. We Again, we all know that. But his arm strength limitations mean that other teams see him as a backup or as Washington does as a low-end starter. And I do still have people telling me Washington some on social media that Washington should just stick with them and surround them with better talent. And I'll just say this, we, all, we know they want to upgrade a quarterback. So that discussion is not what they're having. So I'm not going to have that as well because I, you know, I don't think that's where, where it's going to go. And I don't think that's what they should do, period. But making the case for Heineke staying as a starter is irrelevant when that, the team that coaches him wants to upgrade, if at all possible. Whether you, whether you, I, or anybody else likes it or not, that's what they 
say they're going to do. Now, again, if he ends up as a starter next year because he bring in a, a Mitch Trubisky and he beats him out and they have a rookie starting there, okay, that's, that's the scenario. But the future would still be the other guy. Anyway, that doesn't mean a trade can't or won't happen. And maybe somebody would take him in return. I don't know. I just know of a couple teams that I think where it would be an issue to where Washington would then have to give up more, whether it's another more picks or another prime player, a guy that will sting to get rid of. So you can't tell that you can't say, hey, give him, you know, Ricky Seals Jones and whatever. It's got to be a guy that's going to hurt. And, and we all know that. I also know that while there are several, and by the way, I like Ricky Seals Jones, but point is he's, he's not your primary tight end. I also know that while there are several vets that keep getting mentioned, the reality is teams just don't want to trade quarterbacks who are good. Why would they? Derek Carr might get re-upped in Las Vegas. And I, like I told you, I'd always heard that the owner there was not a huge fan of him as a player, but the coaches have been. And I give Mark Davis credit because if that's what he believes, but yet he's still going to do this, he's listening to his coaches. That's quite a novel novelty there, isn't it? It's hard to imagine Seattle really trading Russell Wilson unless an offer just blows them away. Wilson would be terrific. I've always liked him. But as our, my ESPN colleague, Brady Henderson, who covers Seahawks, told us last week on the podcast, go listen if you didn't, where are they going to find another quarterback? They need to have a clear alternative to rebuilding the organization, and that means that position. Otherwise, why would you trade him? If they had a higher pick, for example, and they really like Kenny Pickett and they felt like they could go in that direction, build around Pickett while moving on from Wilson, the salary, et cetera. OK, that that the alternatives right now don't really exist for them. So unless there's a massive, massive offer, it's really hard to see it. Arizona's Kyler Murray is reportedly upset with the Cardinals. I don't know what this group thinks of Murray. I know he was the guy that the previous regime would have loved prior to him being drafted in that year, um, the year that Haskins was drafted. But we all we do know he'd be an upgrade if there's a realistic chance he'd even available. Being upset can also mean, where's my contract extension? In a tweet, ESPN's Chris Mortensen said Murray was described to him as self-centered, immature, and a guy who points the finger. In the past, some reports about his um, the way he works would seep out as well. He's also uber-talented and has done some great things in the NFL. But I would not automatically jump on trading for Murray and you definitely should not assume what you're hearing about him is incorrect. And I think all it does is it means there's a lot more to check out. And I don't, I don't say you should automatically assume it's incorrect. I just think it means you have to go check out a lot more. I know Washington had a long list of guys that was checking out. I'm sure if they felt like he'd be available, he has to be on the list because other guys that are, are not at his level. I would not automatically trade for him. I would do some severe due diligence. Murray's an exciting player, but I don't view him as a slam dunk. But again, if he's available, you got to check it out. Let's talk a little bit about, I guess, the Bengals and that end of it. And Joe Burrow, they have more than Burrow offensively as Jamar Chase has been a huge help. Burrow is the straw. Many, of course, like Burrow coming out. This team would have drafted him if the Bengals had gone in a different direction. Um, they definitely would have if they could have. If another team had been in that top pick, I do believe Washington would have traded up to get Burrow. Nobody has told me that. I don't think, you know, but that's just a deduction based on what I know they felt about Burrow. Um, and, you know, I think with the others, they had questions, but with Burrow, they did not. Now, others did have questions about him, notably, notably about his arm. He does not have a cannon, but he has a good enough arm. He's also an A-plus-plus leader and A-plus-plus competitor. And I think those are the two qualities I'd always look for in a quarterback. I think what it's it helps a guy max out, at least to a guy being as prepared as anyone, which is Burrow. And anybody else who has that label attached to him, I think that's what you get as well. 
There's no Burrow in this quarterback draft class, of course. I know Malik Willis is the flashy one with the highest ceiling, but also with a long way to go just from getting used to calling plays in the huddle, handling NFL concepts coming from a smaller school. And obviously some from bigger schools have to overcome that as well. It's not impossible to overcome. It's just one reason why some teams view him as a highly talented, but a more raw project. In the right spot, I love him. I like his personality as well. He's an exciting player to watch. I don't know if this group would be patient enough with him. I always go back to that Aaron Rodgers draft years ago. Had Washington drafted him that year, he would have been forced to play him as a rookie. In Green Bay, they, he was allowed to sit because they had Brett Favre. They worked on his delivery for a few years, changed it, allowed him to perfect it, and all the while not playing. That change in delivery, and that was a definite thing that bothered teams before the draft, helped make a big difference in his game. Now, I don't know what would have happened had he been somewhere else. I don't know if he would have succeeded without changing the delivery, but that was a big concern teams have and had, and the Packers helped it. This is obviously a different regime, but as we all know, than the one that draft, than the one that was here then. But as we all know, quarterbacks always play sooner than desired. I talked to one scout the other day who loved Kenny Pickett, called him an A-plus leader, has the intangible, smart. There are questions about him as well, which is why nobody I've talked to, well, excuse me, everybody I've talked to said that. If he'd come out last year, he'd have been the sixth quarterback pick. But as this guy pointed out, Mac Jones was the fifth, and look what he did. But he also went to the right place. And again, that's the key. You know, we'll, we'll get into more of these questions on pick as the offseason unfolds. Now, people say his ceiling is more Derek Carr. But before people say, well, that's, and, and some people will say Andy Dalton too, but Derek Carr would be the higher of those two. But before people say that's not good enough, how many of you would take Derek Carr right now? He hovers around that top 10 group of passers outside of it. But Washington, Washington hasn't had anyone close to that level in a while. I do believe if it came down to between these two passers, Washington would take Pickett if they still need one when the draft rolls around. But regardless, it'll be an interesting couple of weeks as Washington tries to hit a home run for a quarterback. All I would say is you have to vet every quarterback out there who might be available. Not all would be a great fit. And a part, part of what you're looking for is a leader at the position, which Washington is. Then you can't, if that's the case, and you can't overlook the possibility when a guy might not be that, whether it's, you know, there's a bunch of, there's a few guys in that category. For example, even with Mitch Trubisky, you can't just say, well, it was all Matt Nagy's fault because this one article that came out. I'm not buying that. There are other flaws on film with a guy like me, with, excuse me, Trubisky, that aren't about play calling. It's mechanical issues, consistency of those mechanics when throwing the ball, waiting to, waiting to throw until a guy is open, et cetera. That stuff is hard to fix. There will be whispers about Carson Wentz, who Washington will have checked out too. There's a chance he's available. I'd also steer, steer clear. The guy who had him in Philly, Frank Wright, can't make it work with him. What makes you think somebody else will? But And I don't even know if he'll be available. You, you hear there's always things that you see or, or whatever, but – I think that's one where I'd, I'd be a little bit wary on that one. But I hope for this team's sake, Dan Snyder stays out of any decision regarding the quarterback except to give his thumbs up or thumbs down to a trade based on the cost. It's his franchise after all, but he can't be involved in telling them who to get. Ron Rivera has known for a while, even during the win streak, that quarterback had to be upgraded and that they would be aggressive. People now saying they're going to make a bold move are just kind of catching up to this thing, I think, or they just weren't paying attention to it earlier because it wasn't as important to them. But still, it had better be a football decision and not one that has any of Snyder's fingerprints whatsoever. And of course, now as the offseason officially begins today or Monday, we'll turn even more to what Washington does 
um, or needs to do. There will be a ton of emphasis, of course, on quarterbacks, and we just talked about it because it's a vital search, but there's a few other areas of need, including middle linebacker. That, to me, is the top priority on defense. I like that they brought back David Mayo, not because he's a great player, but because he provides depth low on the roster. He can be, they can stick him on the practice squad again and get elevated if you need him. He can play special teams. But the reason I bring him up is what he showed me in that Eagles game was that when you have someone who plays decisively inside a middle linebacker, what a difference it can make for the defense. Cole Holcomb sometimes would play that way and then wouldn't. There's too much inconsistency there for the coaches to believe that that's going to change. They like him outside. That's where he needs to be. Same with Jamin Davis. Both those guys are outside linebackers. Washington knows how important this spot is. I'm telling you, I've been hearing since at least the middle of the season that they would look hard to find a guy at middle linebacker this offseason. Finally, on Dan Snyder himself. I heard Mike Florio's report Sunday on NBC quoting an anonymous ownership-level source that suggested maybe for the first time there's momentum toward getting rid of him, or at least going in that direction. And I have no idea who his source is. I'm not going to speculate. I don't like when people do that. Um, and maybe it's just a salvo fired by the league to get the team to cooperate at a much higher level with, with the investigation to prevent the league from looking bad or looking like they're stonewalling. I don't know. Here's what I know. There's little doubt the owners are tired of him and that he's not well-liked. That was true two years ago. It's, it hasn't changed. There's no doubt the league is tired of him in this situation. We saw that publicly last week with NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell. Clear frustration over the situation. And when you make things public like that, you know that there's got to be, if you're making it public with these letters and saying, you know, making claims about the team and you're saying things in press conferences, it's just imagine the frustration level it takes to reach that point. So I don't doubt that there's a ton of it um, with, with Washington and with Snyder in particular. What I also know is what, that I've heard from, what I've heard from league insiders who know the ownership groups well. And as of now, there doesn't appear to be that sort of momentum. Some say there's none toward ousting him. Maybe if more comes out, that would change. And I don't, you know, this is what you hear. I don't doubt for a second that they'd love Dan to come to a decision on his own to sell. He's been bad for the league after all, and we all know that. Because if they take it to a vote, it could get real ugly for all involved. Maybe that's what's going on here. Make him think it could reach a certain point and, and get him to, to try to avoid that. I don't know. But we know if they put it to a vote, other owners would end up possibly in bad spots too. The word scorched earth would apply to Snyder here. There's still a ways to go in this situation, but I caution against getting your hopes up at this particular point. Where it goes from here, who knows? Again, if more comes out, if certain, you know, then then we, we'll see what happens. But um, I don't know. But this is why I wanted to have Michael McCann on to discuss this even more. And, and I say this with all level of, sympathy, empathy with people who went through the situation here. It's not about whether their situation were real or not. It's all about is there what what's what would it take to get Snyder out if that's where it would eventually go or if that's what is going to happen here. That's my topic today is not so much whether what he did was good or bad. We all know what what that is, but whether and whether it rises to a level where they can see Snyder being forced to sell. But anyways, that's why I wanted to have McCann on. So after this break, I'll be back with noted sports law attorney expert Michael McCann. And I ask him, can he see a scenario where Dan Snyder is forced to sell? And one note, this was recorded before the NFL Senate's letter to Congress, kind of what it said about the team not cooperating with them. But I reached out to Michael to see if that would change anything he had to say. And it really didn't because it just adds another layer of hypotheticals 
that would make it tough to address. Anyway, stick around. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome back. Now, here's my conversation with Michael McCann. Michael, I appreciate you joining me. And as you know, there's a lot of interest in this franchise, Washington and law and Dan Snyder and all that stuff. So I do want to start off with this because one of the things that we've heard a lot about is this common interest agreement and how and how it pertains here. So if you could kind of give us an idea, what exactly does that mean and what power, you know, is that a common thing to sign for teams that are being investigated? Yeah. So the common interest agreement was an agreement that the NFL and the the Washington franchise uh, agreed to as a condition of the league taking over the investigation into allegations that there was workplace misconduct from, you know, there's obviously a long, long list of allegations there. And it was, it was unique in the sense that it wasn't revealed uh, as a starting point until, until the last week. And it also is not necessarily a requirement for it to, for the league to take over an investigation. The league has its own authorities to take over, to investigate teams. We've seen the NBA do that with the Los Angeles Clippers, with the Phoenix Suns. So this agreement it was obviously part of some sort of negotiation between the league and the team that here would be the conditions for Beth Wilkinson, who the the team had hired to investigate. And then of course we know that the league took it over after a couple of months. So as part of that change in who she was reporting to, they agreed the league and team agreed to an agreement that they wouldn't reveal stuff which unless both agreed, which isn't necessarily bad. It's the idea that it, there, there's sensitive information that uh, could be damaging, not, not only to the team or the league, but potentially persons who haven't had an opportunity to defend themselves or accusers that they're trying to sort of keep information in house. The, the, where the criticism has surfaced, I think, is that some of the accusers feel silenced through this process and that, there's a perception that the league hasn't done enough to to report on what it found. Obviously, there was no report. Uh, a very different uh, position that the league took from, say, Deflategate, where there were hundreds of pages of materials published. So, you know, these are all criticisms, and and they'll certainly uh, not going to go away anytime soon. Have you heard of this like a common interest agreement, for example, in the Ray Rice case with Baltimore? Do you know if there were things like that? For other thing, is this a common I get a common agreement to enter into in this situation, in this sort of a situation. Yeah. I, I don't know if there was one in Ray Rice and, and, it, and it's not, I mean, the, the idea that there's an, whether it's called a common interest agreement or called something else, the idea that there's a contractual relationship that instructs how an investigation is going to go is not unusual. So okay. wh- wh- you know, whatever it's called, this, this phrase is getting a lot of attention, but the, and part of that is because the lawyers involved need to know what the parameters are. Right. So they need to know what their duties are. So 
it's not uncommon to have an agreement. Whether the agreement led to the, to this particular set of rules, I, I guess, remains to be seen. And then we've obviously heard a lot. Of, there were some new allegations by Tiffany Johnson, and that came out in the roundtable hearings. And and it, you know, now the league wants to reinvestigate or investigate that aspect of it. And the team said they want to investigate, and the league said, "No, we're doing it." But I'm curious, from your perspective, when you look at this. Um, from a lawsuit situation, what kind of lawsuits could you see developing, if any, from this situation or maybe these allegations? Yeah, so there, there's a time issue with that. When the incident, as I understand the incidents occurred you know, some years ago, so there's right. going to be the issue of statute of limitations in terms of bringing a case that could have already been brought. So that that's a big hurdle for any potential litigation. Now, statute of limitations can be extended or told in certain situations, but we need to know more information about what the arguments are on that front. So that's that's a big hurdle as a starting point. And I would also say lit- litigation doesn't always yield more information. I mean, this is this is one of the hurdles with with any case is that it has to get past a motion to dismiss, and then there's pretrial discovery. But this is a lengthy process, and I think you know for, for for the league's look into Dan, Dan Snyder, they're going to want answers sooner than any potential litigation process, I suspect. So what, and from a congressional standpoint, I don't know how, you know, I know your expert is, is in law, but from a congressional standpoint, are there things that you think that can come out that could further damage the situation? Or, do, or if you say, if you look at what's been out there already, is that enough to maybe do more to whether it's, you know, whether it's punishment, whether it would dance out or whether forcing to sell, whether it's suspension, whatever. What Congress can do is, as I understand it, they've only made voluntary requests. They haven't actually, they haven't issued any subpoenas. So that, that is going to be a big event if they, if they just continue to pressure by, by leaking. I mean, frankly, they're leaking stuff to, to media, right. To sort of apply pressure on both the league and the team, that's fine. And that clearly has an effect, but a a more powerful way of extracting information if they feel as if the league and the team aren't being responsive is to start seeking subpoenas. Now that we'll see if they do that. And I I think if they're gonna do it, they'd probably wanna do it soon because it's February. They're all gonna have to go home to campaign soon for reelection, at least the members of the house. and some senators, uh, depending upon where they are in their six-year term. So, you know, there's a time issue here where if Congress is going to take action, I suspect it would be earlier than later. And we don't know if, if they'll go that go down that path. And also, subpoenas can be challenged in court. So that could kick off its own set of litigation. Oh, great. More litigation. Great. Um, <laughs> but when you look at the, this case, versus the Jerry Richardson case in Carolina. What similarities do you see um, that, you know, again, and again, because a lot of what fans want to know more, first and foremost, is what's going to happen to the owner with this force in the cell. But what's it, what similarities do you see between this and the Richardson situation in Carolina a few years ago? Yeah, so the similarity would be workplace misconduct, mistreatment of women that are working for the team or that are around the team. Uh, and the owner is, in both cases, the owner is now directly accused. This isn't about you know, mismanagement or being apathetic or indifferent. This is a more direct accusation. So there's similarity there. 
uh, with Richardson, there was also race was part of the discussion right. as well. And we, that, so the, there was sort of two layers of alleged misconduct, both in terms of uh, mistreatment of women and making racially insensitive comments. So we haven't seen that, that element here. I also think there's some differences in terms of uh, Richardson was pretty old when, when this came up, uh, Snyder's younger. And I think that has an effect on what, how, how it played out. Richardson, as we understand it, was pressured to sell, but he wasn't forced to sell. And we don't know what would have happened if he had said no and he and the owners had to actually vote on it. Uh, that's a different event than sort of being nudged out. Uh, and, and I, and again, I, you know, we're, we don't know when to, it's already getting into everyone's minds, but uh, my guess is that if Richardson had had these accusations earlier in his life, maybe his reaction would have been different. I don't know. Uh, Snyder's a younger person. Snyder has not given any indication that he plans to sell the team. So my, without being in his head, my right. guess is that he would, he would oppose an effort to remove him. And he knows that it's tough to get three quarters of owners to vote out another owner, uh, particularly if uh, they, you know, people in glass houses uh, was a, shouldn't throw stones. Like, we don't know what, what else, what other owners have done. Right. So um, we, we don't know. We haven't seen an owner voted out. We didn't, we haven't seen that in the NBA. You know, Sterling is brought up a lot. Sterling wasn't voted out. His wife went to court and got a judge to assign the, control of the family trust to her because he was declared incompetent. Um, but, but we don't know if the NBA would have actually voted him out. So it's a high hurdle. It is. And you know, the funny thing is like, I was talking to somebody about this earlier, who knows Dan It's like, he would go scorched earth. So to bring up your point, the glass houses, he's going to go scorched earth and bring up and start throwing rocks at those houses to break that glass and expose whatever else. And it could, I would imagine something like that could get tied up in court for a long time too. Yeah, because because there would have to be a vote. He would he could argue that that it's a breach of the contract that that he's owed fiduciary duties that there's an antitrust violation. I mean, there's all these sort of potential claims that we just haven't seen before. It'd be an unprecedented case. I mean, because some someone like me writes about sports law, it'd be fascinating. But right, uh, you know, it would it would be it would be historic. And my guess is it never gets there. I, I think. If he's punished, it would more likely be some sort. I mean, again, we don't know the allegations. If, right, we don't. Right, true, right. So, you know, one less less uh, uh, what's the word? Uh, le- less strong punishment would be some sort of suspension, right, from the team. Although, you know, I think it's worth asking what is that? What does that actually mean when you suspend an owner? They're not, you know, they're not playing. They're not. You know, they're not the coach. Well, his not, and his really, work. And his wife is the co-CEO, so that's yeah. it's a little bit hard. But la- last thing, then, I appreciate your time here. The Brian Flores lawsuit, too, and filed you know against the NFL and three different teams. Um, in general, how do you see that one unfolding and the impact of it? Well, it, it could take a while to play out. And, and I think that part of it is that the, the core process is going to be slow, especially in a case like this. So he... His lawsuit has a couple big parts. Obviously, there's the claims. There's claims of discrimination and hiring and employment and firing. There's also his effort to have the case certified as a class. Class certification is a complicated, lengthy process where you'd have to establish that there's a viable group of people that he that he would represent that would have common interests. 
we're, we're talking a case that could last years before there's any jury trial. And also the NFL, although the NFL and Goodell in particular has acknowledged that they have work to do, that they need to be more inclusive and that, that they haven't done a good job uh, in terms of some of the issues that Flores has raised, but that's different from saying we've broken the law, right? So they're gonna, they're gonna file a motion to dismiss saying that there isn't a legal conduct, that there's maybe we need to do better, but that's different from breaking the law there'll be a motion to dismiss filed. It will be, it will be months before there's a ruling on that. If it gets past that, there would be discovery, but the league I, I would suspect would try to settle the case before that. And I apologize. I did have one more on the, on the Washington situation with Goodell. I'm talking about the, t- the league taking over an investigation again. What, what sort of, um, how much teeth does that really have? I guess, because they are in partnership with one another and, should should this be made public? And do you think they would make it public given all that has happened um, and the outcry because of it? Well, you're right. I mean, they certainly have been sharply criticized for the lack of transparency, particularly when in other investigations, they're more than forthcoming, right? So this is right. this, you know, cherry picking when they're forthcoming. Uh, I guess it depends. Now they may say, we don't have to, we don't have to issue a report. We're not you know, there, there's no obligation to sort of provide detail. Um, I, my guess, John, is that you're right, that they'd be more likely to be transparent here, given the sharp criticism that they faced, particularly when they didn't issue a report right. when the punishment came down originally. And if and here with an owner, uh, may, maybe they would be more transparent. But, uh, you know, it's fair to ask how, how tough will they be? I would say the NBA was tough. On Donald yeah. Sterling, right, and uh, you know, may, every league is different, but a league can certainly be rigorous when it chooses to be, and I guess we'll see what happens here. Michael, thank you very much. I appreciate it, and let people know where they can follow you, read your work, et cetera, because you have a lot of good insight when it comes to sports law in particular. I appreciate that. So I write for Sportico, um, and I write legal stories for them, and uh, you know, do other interviews, social media stuff. So. You know, there's there's always a lot to talk about. There, yes, yes, there is, and there's even more this off season. So I appreciate you taking some time during a busy period. Thank you. you got it. Thanks, John. That's it for this episode. Thanks to Michael for joining me, and thank you as always for tuning in. We'll get back to the business of rookie quarterbacks on Wednesday when I talk with Sam Fortier of the Washington Post. I'll talk to you next time.